Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. In this episode, I explore the Christian community of Taizé. Seemingly nothing seems to happen, but then something happens. Reconciliation among all Christians, opening doors of hospitality and invitation, prayer as the center of life. They had been secretly formed as Christians because it wasn't allowed. So were they from the underground church? Then when suddenly he, he disappeared, then we discovered that in fact he prepared the whole community to live also without him. In 1940, at the height of World War II, a young man named Roger Schutz left the safety of Switzerland and returned to his mother's homeland in Burgundy, France, then controlled by the Vichy regime and just miles from Nazi-occupied France. He came with a purpose, having felt compelled to help those suffering during the war. He acquired a derelict home in the surrounding buildings and turned the modest encampment into a place of refuge for those seeking sanctuary during the war. Over the next two years, he provided a safe haven for Jews, Christians and people of no faith who sought to evade the Nazi regime. His project eventually caught the attention of the Gestapo, who seized the property, causing Roger to return to Switzerland. In 1944, he was able to return to liberated France, and he continued his work assisting orphans, displaced people and prisoners of war. His personal mission quickly grew into an ecumenical community of Christian brothers, focused on a simple life of prayer and service. In the decades that followed, Taizé's mission expanded to include a vast camp for young people. It now attracts tens of thousands of visitors every year. The environment is deliberately austere. No TV, bars or nightclubs. Most attendees sleep in their own tents, while others share Spartan dorms with half a dozen strangers, many of whom share no common language. The young people typically stay for a week and are put to work cleaning, preparing simple meals, or doing the dishes. The community, far removed from the modern secular world, is a place of prayer, reflection, and discovery. But what should a potential visitor expect from Taze? To find an answer, I spoke to Brother Sebastian, a long-term member of the community. I think what you expect is always a little bit unexpected because you can't say beforehand, oh, that, that, that's exactly what I'm going to experience. In spite of, to say, being a very simple place, there's nothing great to see. No, you don't have the Eiffel Tower there or whatever. Uh, even the church is not very nice to see, from, at least from the outside. The inside, it's, it's, it's nice, I think, but the outside is an oversized beer hall. Well, the nature around is very beautiful. What you can expect is through something very simple, like meeting other people, 
um, moments, really long moments of silence, like already during the prayer, uh, like during the common prayer, there, there are 10 minutes of silence. Seemingly nothing seems to happen, but then something happens and you don't know where it comes from. Um, experience of God, uh, your own inner life. I think what young people mostly tell me, it's like feeling at home, coming home, be, being able to be absolutely yourself you don't need to be somebody else that you are you're accepted as you are that's that and they can be believers or non-believers or people who are searching it's a sense of community i think can be a deep deep sense of community like many brother sebastian made his first trip to taze as a teenager i was 19 years old when i came for the first time making this this experience of community of prayer of silence trying to discover deeper questions myself that was the that was rediscovering faith i think and then the second year the second summer i came back i was more with the question it's like okay it's nice to make a nice experience but then after one week it's over i mean then you go back home and then what you do then uh, i did med- medical studies to becoming a doctor and then so I came back especially just to do one week of silence, like a retreat, silent retreat, speaking with one of the older brothers every day, like half an hour, 45 minutes, and then being in silence the whole day um, with Bible texts, uh, reflecting about God, but also myself, my life. And there grew this awareness that feeling almost like a calling, you know, like mm-hmm. give your life for this place as a brother and uh, it was i felt it like a vocation i was called to do this and then i took the decision in this week of silence mm-hmm. and then i left my study and i left everything behind to 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 do this and that's already 40 years ago huh? while Taze offers respite from the world around us it's inevitably impacted by geopolitical events as sister judith rossi of the catholic sisters of saint mary of namur discovered when she led a group to Taze. In 1990. One of the years that we were there was the year that the wall came down between East and West Germany. So the fall of that communist group. And we really prepared the group for the fact that they weren't going to be staying in hotels. It was extremely basic. They were going to be camping. So we we did such a good job of telling them how basic it was that they found it much better than we said. Um, And also, you know what? Everybody's doing the same thing and everybody's in the same boat. It's not a problem. What what really brought the young people up really short was when they saw how the people from Eastern Europe, they were for the very first time getting out of Eastern Europe and they were traveling, not like us, 18 hours. They were traveling a week, huge amounts of distances, in these rickety old double-deckers and coaches, they didn't have all the lovely stuff that we had, like change of clothes, plenty of food. They really were having to cope with very, very difficult circumstances. So, of course, when they arrived in Taze, it it was the opposite of what we thought Taze was. So it was a lot better. Now, that interaction between the first wave of Eastern Europeans coming to the West 
and our young people blew their minds. They were billeted together, they shared, they got to know them very well. And you know, when they left Teze, our people, they just emptied out all their bags and, and gave them to the friends that they'd made from Eastern Europe. Jeans and things like this that we take for granted. They had none of this. The trainers. Now, in those days, it was cassette players, but there were no mobile phones or anything like that. So everything that they could give to them, they did. And in a sense, it was the Eastern Europeans that really evangelized and cha challenged us. It was very moving, very, very moving. What was also moving was the fact that these young people who were the same age as all our group, they had been secretly formed as Christians because it wasn't allowed. So they were from the underground church and they spoke their English. They really wanted to speak English. They spoke Shakespearean English because they'd learnt it from books that had been smuggled in. And of course, it, I mean, on one level, it sounded very funny, but very quickly, our young people learnt not to laugh. They were just in full admiration. The first visits were, let's put it this way, very educational for our people. It, mm -hmm. it made them think long and hard about their values and what they thought was essential. Far beyond the confines of Burgundy, religious groups and communities around the world have developed services based on the Teze style that include music and chants developed by the community. Stephen Betancourt is the assistant director of the campus ministry at Loyola University in Chicago. He's been organizing Teze style services for several years. I moved to Chicago in January of 2000. And at that time, before I was at Loyola, the, the church I was working with, uh, some parishioners were asking about starting a Tuesday service, which I didn't know anything about at the time. Uh, so I was open to it. And part of that kind of research process, we went to Ascension Church here in Oak Park, Illinois. We went to the service there, which has a long tradition of always being on the first Friday of every month, as well as uh, New Year's Day. And music director there, David Anderson, has worked with the Tizay community for a long time and is also one of the editors at GIA Publications, which is the Catholic publisher here in the United States that works to make the music Tizay available to us here in the United States. So I had reached out to him and asked him if he'd be open to talking with me about what it would be like to start up a Tizay service. And of course, in his style, he's very open to it and kind of talked to me about some of the basics. And so after that, we did the service about once a month in our in our church there in Chicago, and then uh, that was a great experience. And then I came here to Chicago, or to Loyola University Chicago, in the summer of 2007. And at that time, there had been a tradition of, of Tizay services here. And so with what I knew from my parish, we continued that tradition here at the university. And then that January of 2008, they were going on a pilgrimage trip to the Tizay community in France. And campus ministry had asked if I would be interested in attending, learning a little bit more about the Tizay uh, community in France. So I did. That was my first trip to the community in France and really learned a lot, kind of opened my eyes to how the service was organized and we made some adjustments 
on campus to our service here to have more of the spirit and the style of the Tizay community. So it's kind of my introduction to how things started for, for me and for, here, for us here at Loyola. Tizay is known for its music, but I asked my guests what makes the music so special. The repetition makes it special. They're really well-composed melodies that aren't difficult to sing. They're not entirely too high or too low, but but they are, I mean, I think for lack of a better word, catchy. And also the fact that the community makes an effort to sing in so many languages as a, as a gesture of invitation to people from across the world, I think also is another opportunity for for invitation to, to the prayer, but also I think which makes it so enticing for people to feel like their language and you know their tradition is respected. So it's also another spot for, for people to feel invited to join in the singing. It's simple and yet it's very profound and it's many layered, many layers of harmonies coming in and out. So it carries you. You don't have to be musical or even understand the language, it carries you. Kind of like in a way that Gregorian chant does. The Teze music, now widely used by different Christian denominations all over the world, is one aspect of the community that generates interest among prospective attendees. The chants and melodies are familiar to most of the students who travel to Teze from Loyola University, as Stephen Betancourt explains. We, over the years, have moved to having students go on the pilgrimage that have some sort of connection with the prayer that we do on our campus. So they have an awareness of what the prayer is because they've participated and attended here. But the students come from all different walks of life. They're Catholic, we're Catholic University, but we also have some Christian students, some students that aren't really sure where their faith life is. And so when we go, the prayer becomes deeper and richer because it's with the brothers and in the community. So that's that's a neat connection for us. But I think it's the rhythm of the daily life that really starts to have the impact for them. Usually for us by Tuesday, Monday is a little bit of a jet lag day for us because we arrive on Sunday. Once they get there and they see the people from all over the world that are gathered there to pray and to be in conversation and to read the Bible and talk about where faith is in their life. That's when they start to, to see the impact and the experience of talking about faith and struggles with faith and challenges with other young people. And then to hear the stories of the brothers and the volunteers or the permanents that are there working in Tizay, I think has a, has a deep impact on, on our students, making them think about the world in ways they've never thought about, to think about their own life experience in ways they've never thought about. The students start to then realize the, the place of Tizay, both kind of historically and geographically, thinking about Clooney and the, the monastic tradition in, in that area, thinking about how world the world wars had an impact in that area, seeing the beauty of the countryside. I think it just provides a lot of avenues for the students for contemplation and reflection, for prayer and for, for deep thought and deep conversation. Outside of Teze, Christians typically segregate themselves when it's time for worship into denominations that are easily identifiable 
by sometimes substantial differences in doctrine and belief. Nevertheless, in Burgundy, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, and even non-Christians participate in communal worship and Bible study. I asked Brother Sebastian to explain how his community have managed to break down the barriers that often preclude ecumenical worship elsewhere. I think we can go back to very basic things, you know, like reading the Bible together, praying together, really, I have to say, talking about very basic questions, like what are you searching for? Who is God for you? What does it mean to live as a Christian today? What is love, in fact? What does it mean forgiveness? What is reconciliation between people? I think whatever church you come from, these are the same questions. We can find each other. And then the, the, the more surprising element is, is that, yeah, there are young people, especially from Europe, who are not Christian, who never go to church, and also join the program. They participate fully. They go to the prayers. And that's, for me, always a bit of a surprise. Like, how can they experience it as something really positive? Because the atmosphere is not neutral. It's not like a youth hostel or something like that. No, it is. Something is happening. It's about faith. It's about... But still, this perhaps that's also the founder of this, a brother Roger, mm-hmm. he always said that um, we should leave people in a total inner freedom. We should not manipulate them, their conscience, not to force them into anything, not to force them to believe. Let them discover by themselves. And I think that, for instance, non-Christians, they feel this, this real inner liberty. So they can be also themselves. They can join even in this question because also they are interested in the question of who is God. And they are not like pushed apart. Oh, you're, you're not a believer or like something like that. So it's, I think it's a place of respect. And there are people feel at ease from different denominations or yeah, non-Christians or so. The approach to worship was one of the factors that originally drew Sister Judith to Taze. Spirituality is universal. And what's really clever about it is you get a real sense of being part of the people of God where there are no boundaries. You know, whether you're Lutheran, Catholic, Protestant, not sure, really haven't got a clue what it's all about, just a curious onlooker. You find yourself really taken up into a whole, a really holistic spirituality. What they've created there is very, very impressive because anybody can find their place in it. You know, it isn't particularly one or the other. You see young people who haven't prayed at all. They're for hours. Now, on Sunday, like when the Catholics would want to go to Mass or other people want to go to their service, what they do is they will say in certain parts of the field, the Catholics would gather for, and there are Catholic priests there. We had Catholic priests with us, you know, so they could go to Mass. But actually, the prayer that goes on all the time People are just there for hours and hours and hours in their thousands, you know. Now, they also have they also have uh, scripture sharing and reflection in language groups. And a brother is with each group to animate that. So people share on the gospel. Now, everybody that's there, may, maybe Christian, maybe not. You suddenly get a, a real sense that God is bigger than any one religion. That it, it, God is just so big, we can't get our heads around it. And on this hillside, you have a little bit of a peep at that. 
we are all one people. This dividing up of humanity, this dividing up of races and everything, that's man-made. We've done that. There's only one people, and that's God's people. There's only one race. That's the human race. The rest is a social construct. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you, where you're from, what your denomination is, if any, you're one. It's very, very, very interesting. When Teze was founded, there were no on-site distractions. But with people glued to their cell phones 24-7, I asked brother Sebastian if that had presented a challenge to his community. It's perhaps a little bit more difficult, especially in the beginning of the week. But then at a certain moment, the real meetings, to meet another in person and not through your phone, I mean, to have a real meeting. I think when you really meet people and, and, and you talk with them, you can walk together with them, you can play a game with them. You, Well, that's more interesting than being on your phone at the end. So at the end of the week, nobody looks anymore or they look at the bible text that they have also in their phone because people have everything in their phone they don't put it totally away but the meet the real meeting the, the not a virtual but a real the presence of people that is more interesting i think that's that's why you see that experience of this it becomes almost stronger now than 20 years ago because the contrast is a little bit bigger than 20 years ago the contrast i mean what you can live here it's really different than what you live in daily life now. In the summer of 2005, during a nightly prayer session, Teze founder, Brother Roger, then aged 90, was attacked and killed by a congregant with severe psychiatric problems. The man who had done so much to serve and to bring people together was gone. Some wondered how the community would survive without its figurehead. But as Brother Sebastian explains, the group has continued to thrive. It was, in fact, relatively easy to, to move forward. And it was a surprise for us because he was really the heart and the founder. I mean, the one who had this vision. Without him, Teze would not exist at all. So it's hard to, when I knew him for 25 years, it was difficult to imagine him to live without this uh, person with an incredible sense of intuition and vision until his death, until he was 90, in fact. But he was always putting new questions, asking new questions, like, what does God want of us? And I said, then when suddenly he, he disappeared, yeah, to, uh, he was killed yeah, by uh, somebody who had a psychological yeah, sickness. Then we discovered that, in fact, he prepared the whole community to live also without him. That he prepared it well because you have sometimes organizations or communities where when the founder disappears, everything collapses. But in our case, the the foundation was 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 much more solid than even I imagined. We were able to continue without him, and today, yeah, we live with questions that Brother Roger did not have so much. For instance, now with, a, with the other brother, we go to Glasgow eh, for the the COP26, no? this climate. Uh, and we are present. We have Teze prayers there, invited by the, the students' organizations there. And Brother Roger was very much 
men from who lived the Second World War. It was about peace, reconciliation between peoples. The question of ecology or saving the earth or planet was not of his generation. And there you see that Brother Alois, who is now uh, actual leader of the community, the, the, we say prior, he is very much in his questions. And so we are very attentive uh, to ecology, to very curious to know who we can meet there. And, and we are, to say, very busy with these questions. That's a change. So we we have to deal with new questions, like you said, with cell phones and, and, and social media that didn't exist in the time of Brother Roger. So they are all new questions that we have to deal with it now. I mean, we, so we can't live simply exactly doing what Brother Roger did. That's not enough, because there are new questions, a new way of living, new generations coming. And so we have to continue. Um, we got a lot of support and many, many people from the whole world, like Desmond Tutu, wanted to come for the funeral. So many people were, the, the Pope in that time, Benedict XVI, we were really helped by all the support around. While Taizé flourishes, church attendance in the West continues to dwindle. Traditionally Protestant areas such as the UK and Scandinavia have seen the sharpest drop-off, while traditionally Catholic Spain now has one of the lowest church attendance rates in Europe. Various churches are continuing to grow in Asia, Africa, and even in some of the formerly communist states of Eastern Europe. But many of the American, French, British and German young people going to Taizé are from communities experiencing a religious decline. Working at a Catholic university, Stephen Betancourt is no stranger to this issue. We talk about this question a lot, even in our own department here, and kind of within the Archdiocese of Chicago, so for Catholics, I'm Catholic. But I keep coming back to, in my mind, for my opinion, the, what the brothers of Tizay are doing, reconciliation among all Christians, opening doors of hospitality and invitation, prayer as the center of life. You know, Brother Alois, who's the, the leader of the community, spoke at the Synod in Rome that Pope Francis had just opened this year. His leadership in the community, I think, is something that denominations can take to heart. In his address to the Synod, he asked, because the, there was the question, what could the Synod be for people? And the leader of the today community said, what if we brought together young people from all over the world to pray and to listen to them and to, and to see where they're at in their faith journey and what they need from the church. I think that's the leadership and that's something I think all of us could take in, could take into account. Keeping prayer as the center of our life, listening with, with deep intent to the people that we work with, that we minister with, providing solid, you know, leadership uh, centered in prayer for our church. I, for me, you know, the, the music is just as a growth from, from prayer and from leadership. And so I think uh, we, we hear that all the time, like, oh, play rock music or play, play you know, music with a band. I, I don't think the style of music, in my opinion, is going to attract or detract people from the church. I think solid prayer and solid leadership from our, from our communities is what draws people. And then the, the music and, and the singing and all that comes as an outgrowth. Of a, of a well-centered community, in my opinion. <laughs> Sister Judith, can the mainstream denominations 
Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans and others learn anything from Taizé about evangelizing and engagement. I think the institutional churches are in crisis. And I think that the way in which we're approaching the whole question of evangelization isn't going to work. When a system is broken, you don't continually try to repair it with what caused it to break in the first place. You've got to rethink it. And in order to rethink it, you've got to listen to the grassroots. And I, I think Teze has something to say to us. I think the radicality of the brothers, their witness, has a lot to say to us. And I think that's something that people find very attractive. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.